What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 18. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, we sit down for an interview with Mike Freiheit. And Mike is a comic book artist who has successfully used Kickstarter two times to fund campaigns. So we're going to talk to Mike about some of the things that he's learned through Kickstarter, through crowdfunding, through any kind of self-marketing, and being a freelance illustrator and a comic book artist. Mike also has a very interesting story to tell because he's moved around a little bit in his life. He's from Colorado, went to school here in New York City, has since moved to Chicago, but he also worked at a primate sanctuary in South Africa for nine months, and that's the basis of his comics. He is someone who has published two comics called Monkey Chefs version 1 and 2, and is currently working on the third one, which he will once again use Kickstarter to help fund. Mike is quite the self-aware dude, and he's somebody who can give great advice on how to be a person, but also how to use business practices that will hopefully get you to where you want to go. And you'll find that those two things are very closely intertwined. I know that for a lot of us, it's getting harder and harder to make a dollar, and that doesn't mean that we're all not making money, but we can feel the crunch around us. It stands to reason that the more genuine that we are, and the more we follow our passions, and the more we're willing to be vulnerable, the happier we'll be because we'll learn things about ourselves. The more self-satisfied we are, the more we'll connect with other people. And, you know, this month's topic on the Wall Breakers is a dual topic. It's independence and revolution. This comes from Bastille Day and Independence Day from America on July 14th and July 4th. Something that I noticed when I was writing an editorial about independence this month, I didn't realize it until I sat down, but so much of our life is spent searching for independence, and we think sometimes that it's searching for independence from you or I. You know, give me my space. I want my space. I have my own apartment. I have my own car. I have my own this, that. But the truth is, we're searching for our own independence against fear, away from anxiety, stagnation, general insecurity, and when we can attain independence from that negative mindset that sometimes permeates all of our lives that makes us more me-centric and more closed off, almost like an, an ogre in a cave. And um, speaking of which, if I sound like I'm in a cave, it's because my apartment sometimes when I record these things is slightly cave-like, so I'm either going to have to go stalactite chic or get some soundproofing in here. But with that being said, it's really important for us guys to connect with other people we all have passions, we all have interests. When you find people that also have those similar passions and interests, we have common ground. Steve Atanasio, Breaking Walls, Episode 6, spoke about the common ground that he had with people in a Mongolian yurt that he didn't even speak the same language with. And it was a life-altering scenario for him. Mike Freiheit had an experience where he spent nine months in a monkey sanctuary in South Africa, tending to the monkeys and cooking for both the monkeys and the people. There were times that he was in communication with primates that don't speak the same oral language that you and I do, but they certainly speak the same language through facial characteristics, through general personality, and through other things so like social grouping, like family traits, and other things of that nature. When you have an experience like we've all had at some point in our life that's life-changing and it really stays on your mind, it's important sometimes to get it out there in some sort of creative expression. All of us human beings, we are all creative. Even if you say, well, I'm an accountant, or I'm a this or I'm a that, you're a creative person. Do you like food with ketchup? That's some sort of form of creativity in and of itself. You have to understand that the more we can channel into who we are, 
the better we're going to be for it, and the better we can run our own lives like Mike will get to in this podcast. So, as I always say, you can get these podcasts by going to soundcloud.com slash thewallbreakers. You can follow us there, and then anytime that you go to soundcloud.com, if we have recently released a track, it'll appear in your feed and you can listen to it. You can also subscribe to The Wall Breakers by going to iTunes and searching for The Wall Breakers on iTunes and subscribing there. That way, on your Apple devices, when you have your podcasting app, you can have them downloaded automatically to your device. And normally we're going to release podcasts on the first of the month and the 15th of the month. This month it's a little bit different since I was sick at the beginning of the month. I'm going to work very hard to make sure that I come back next week with an additional interview for July's topic before we move into August. If all else fails and you're still looking for a place to listen to the Wallbreakers podcast, then go to thewallbreakers.com and play the handy SoundCloud and embedded player in the right-hand rail, which has podcasts in descending chronological order, so the most recent will be the first one that you can listen to. This is Breaking Walls 18. I'm very proud of that. I've stuck with this, and the possibilities of what this can become are growing in my mind, and that's because you guys have been giving me such positive support. I'm going to try to keep kicking these interviews into high gear, and one thing that I loved about today's interview with Mike, when I went back and edited it after we recorded it, and sometimes I notice this when I do these over Skype sessions or over Google Chat sessions, it takes the interviewer and the interviewee a couple of minutes to get really heavily into the mood, but once it does, it takes off because the emotions come out, and by emotions, I mean the passions. As me, the interviewer, listening to Mike's story, and as Mike, as he recounts the things that make him who he is. And we're all somebody who is somebody, and we're all a set of unique people that have unique characteristics. And I'm going to keep it right here for Breaking Walls, Episode 18. Thoughts on using crowdfunding to finance creative endeavors with comic book artist Mike Freiheit. Stay tuned after this little pause. Hey guys, back on Breaking Walls, and my guest today is Mike Freiheit. I wanted to sit and talk with Mike about self-promotion and self-marketing and ways that you can monetize your life and use Kickstarter, because Mike, at this point in time, has launched two successful Kickstarter campaigns for his Volumes 1 and 2 of Monkey Chef comic. And so I'd like to welcome Mike to the podcast. Hello! And now Mike is a successful illustrator who went to SVA in Brooklyn, currently lives in Chicago, and is from Colorado. So he's also well-traveled, and he knows a thing or two about what the world is like as a, an illustrator, because as I think you would attest to, you're basically a freelancer or nothing. Yeah, there's not, uh, there's not too many like staff jobs or you know, you're at like the bullpen at Marvel or something like that. A lot of it's kind of uh, piecing a, uh, some sort of income together just through different jobs, which mostly works. <laughs> yeah, right. And I think that you'd find it develops a lot of confidence in yourself as a businessman when you have no choice if you want to survive, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, you have to get, you, you definitely have to keep your options open and you just kind of have to look for, you have to look for opportunities where you might not necessarily expect them. I mean, for me, I'm like not the most successful illustrator in the world or anything like that. I do okay. Um, I know guys who are like, get way more steady work than I do, but they're also like marketing more and promoting more and they're probably promoting their work more specifically to certain magazines, whereas I'm kind of just 
trying to do my own thing all the time and not really specifically promote, I would say, to certain things, which if you really want to go after one thing, you probably should, which I might get better at, but a lot of my illustration is more like I like doing it, but it's it's more like quick shot stuff so I can like live and make comics because that's really more of my the main thing that I'm doing. So let's go to the beginning then. You are obviously a huge comic book fan. Or some well, yeah, of the I mean, I've been collecting comics since I was a kid, and then I guess I've always wanted to draw them too, but I didn't really do, I didn't really, I just drew a lot when I was a kid. I didn't really draw comics though. I didn't make my first comic until I was like a junior in college, and I was studying illustration at SVA. I wasn't studying comics or anything. See, I didn't know I wanted to do comics until then, and then the illustration thing kind of fell by the wayside, and I didn't pick that up for like another, you know, good three years before I started to try and get jobs and all that stuff. So I was mostly just doing self-published comics and all that. Both of those things are still heavily involved in art. What are some of your earliest memories of loving art, you know, be it comics, be it just illustration, or general things in art or ca- cartoons? Or Going back to you as a child, where does that begin for you? What are some of your earliest memories? Well, I guess I, I drew my first painting, or I made my first painting when I was like one or two. I guess I drew a beluga whale, which I wish okay. I still had. Or my mom, I wish my mom still had, because I would love to fucking see that thing. Sorry about the swears. No, um, that's totally cool. I tend to swear too much, sorry. But no, I think I saw like Ninja Turtles, and I was like, holy shit, this is so cool. And I got like Ninja Turtles comics, and then I started to get like X-Men and, and all that, and I was like, wow, it's so dynamic, and like, look at all those muscles and all that. You know, all that dumb stuff you're like attracted to when you're younger, and you're like, oh, they're all so cool, it's all action-packed and all that stuff. Yeah, I don't know what it was about comics, like, growing up, but they were just, like, I don't know. There's some sort of magic to being able to just sit down and, like, have a whole story in front of you, and it's just all you and that one thing you're looking at. That's a great way to put that. Yeah, it's it's some sort of engagement. I don't know. I think it's just you're engaging with this one thing, and it's like, you know, you're touching it, too, and you're turning the pages. But it's not a book. It's, you know, it's it's got pictures and words at the same time, so it's, like, all this great stuff. It's almost like a, a... A visual representation of your imagination almost when you pick up a comic book or any kind of story arc like that in general. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I guess it kind of takes the imagining the images part out of your head a little bit because it's already doing that for you. But the thing with comics is it has this weird, like, it's kind of really hard to explain, but the, the marriage between words and pictures, there's something so, like, perfect about that because mm-hmm. they're... They exist separately, but together, and yet they're like helping each other out, but they're still kind of separate. It's a weird thing that sometimes shouldn't work, but seems like it does. The people can't see me right now, but when you just said that, I was like shaking my head and like nodding, yes, like violently, like yes, absolutely. I completely agree with that. (laughs) 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 But you also, you know, the first time I spoke to you, it, we have mutual friends, and but the first time I spoke to you was through the Wall Breakers, and uh, it was to publish some yeah. of your illustrations, like uh, Muslim Football, which comes to my mind immediately. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, if anybody has never seen Muslim Football, go to thewallbreakers.com and search for that. But point being uh, that you have a a very <laughs> distinct, it's a very distinct sense of humor. I, I don't I don't necessarily think it's necessarily self deprecating, but it's like you poke fun at the world in an amusing way. Where does that come from? Like. You seem to be somebody who doesn't take yourself too seriously, but obviously takes your craft seriously at the same time. I mean, I always think of this quote that is, uh, you know, the world is too serious to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And I always just remember that at the back of my head. And I think there's, 
I don't know, there's a certain disconnect with daily life of, like, how serious things are and, like, how, you know, things are supposed to run and, like, we have to be, we have to be serious and we have to, like, careers and, like, all this, all this kind of fabricated shit that really doesn't speak to how humans function or, like, how they really work. Right, absolutely. And I just think humor is, like, the best kind of unifier. I mean, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's, like, can uh, break people apart, but... For the most part, it's this unifier where, you know, laughter is so universal, and then mixing the serious or the abstract or the absurd in with that, it sticks with you a lot more. Because, you know, how many people do you know it's like you, you tell a joke and, like, that's what they remember you for. That's what they remember you. They either remember you for being an asshole or they remember you for being, like, telling a great joke or something like that. Right. Not like a lot of, like, super nice people. Like, oh, yeah, he was nice, but, like, Maybe if you if you were like a jerk, they'd be like, "Yeah, I, I remember that guy. Like he really stuck in my head because he was a jerk." Or you know, they he told this joke. I don't really know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> no. But I also I think it speaks to okay. You and I have similar senses of humor naturally. We we kind of poke fun at the world and ourselves at the same time, and sure. sometimes that does rub people the wrong way. And I think sometimes maybe it rubs people the wrong way because they themselves aren't comfortable with themselves. So like. By you having such a sense of humor, it shows that you're comfortable with who you are. Humor can also be a deflection in a way of coping, which is definitely what I use it for, too, because because the world is so absurd, like, you have to somehow get inside that and look around at it, because so many things we do in real life are just so stupid. I mean, we just do so many fucking dumb things, like, humans are... That we have no choice about. We have to do them. Yeah, a lot of things. Well, we're stuck in systems, so it's it's kind of hard, and... and I guess the absurdity of it is where, really where I find humor. Just, you know, like, we get up every day and we put on clothes even though we're walking apes and we worry about all these things we don't need to worry about. I don't know, daily life. I might just be, like, sputtering and muttering right now, but... <laughs> no, 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 but I agree with you. And, and if you look at, like, every comic, like, stand-up comic or comedian of any kind, the most successful ones generally are the ones that poke fun at the absurdity of the regimented life that we live. And that's part of this topic too, of, about, you know, being in business for yourself and Kickstarter. It's breaking from the mold of it professionally, like the nine to five realm that we're supposed to live and you get two weeks vacation and, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, well, what if you are somebody like most people are that don't really, you know, like you're, you're taught a certain way, but that doesn't take into account who Mike is. Right, I think there's there's some people who are fine with just with taking what they're given, and then there's some people who kind of want to dig and find things for themselves and kind of like work out ways for whatever they are internally and however they think to be shown in the outside world and to have that reflect how they feel on the on the inside. And I think a lot of people just kind of take what they're given, like you know, they listen to like top forty radio or they watch this one show or they go get this job because that's the job that you're supposed to be to get to be normal or credible or seen as uh, a productive member of society. Yeah, productive member of society, which, you know, is just complete fucking bullshit in itself because, I mean, I don't know, I could just go off on this, but, you know, society itself is just, there's just so many flaws and cracks and all these things where, you know, I, I think everyone deep down is, a, is kind of a huge fucking weirdo. And if yeah. everyone well, looked that out more and was not afraid to do that, then we'd all be feeling so much better. <laughs> I, I I absolutely completely agree, and we all have so much more in common with each other 
than we sometimes think or feel or, you know, and okay. So now in terms of somebody like yourself who is willing to put themselves out there to exercise something inside of you that you need to get out, you go from Colorado to New York for college to SVA. Uh, What was that process like? What drew you to New York? What were you feeling at the time when you were making a leap like that at 18 years old, you know, going there on your own? It was really scary, but I realized I was actually homeschooled until my sophomore year of high school. Really? Okay. I was like inside a lot and like learning a lot and drawing a lot and kind of in my own weird world and didn't have a lot of friends here in Colorado. Uh, So I was like kind of a weird fucking kid. I'm sure I still am. But uh, so my sophomore year of high school, I went there and I quickly learned like, oh, wait, most of these people are full of shit. And yet I still want them to like me, you know? You still want to, like, find friends and, like, try sure, and normal a place where you're not supposed to be. Or it's like you don't feel very welcome. So, you know, I quickly kind of realized, like, oh, I think it's actually just this place. It's not me. I was actually thinking about going to Art Center in Pasadena. But I was like, I don't really want that. I want, like, some sort of, like, crazy experience. So I was like, okay, I'll go to New York, you know? James Jean, he went to SVA. Tomer Hanukkah, he went to SVA. I loved all those guys. Loved all their work. And I was like, I'm going to go to this place. And, I mean, I can't even explain how crazy it was moving to New York. It was insane. Like, I'd never seen anything like it. I'm pretty sure I was shell-shocked for, like, the first year. Like, really? Awesome time and just, like, you know, drinking myself to death and doing a lot of really good work, too. But, yeah, I, I knew I had to put myself in an uncomfortable situation and also just a completely different situation of where I'm from because, you know, here in Colorado, it's... Well, here in this area of Colorado, it's very conservative, lots of, like, weird Christian organizations, which I don't give a shit about. It's kind of like a cultural wasteland <laughs> as far as, like, art or uh, music, really anything that's cool and fun. <laughs> it's just kind of a wasteland. So I was like, I need to put myself in, like, the heart of everything and just completely, sure. completely blow my mind as much as possible. That's what I had to do. To me, the, the, the courage there is to say to yourself, okay, where I'm from is not something that fits my personality. I could just float through life or I can take a risk and go find out who I am in the process of it, which is something that I think is incredibly important that people do. And it's great that you did at as young of age as you did because it taught you so many things about yourself. Granted you chose New York, which coming from New York, it's so funny. That's such a fucking education in itself being in New York. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's such a, there's so much sensory, sensory deprivation going on every day in New York. (laughs) Yeah. Or over, over sensory, if if that's a word. (laughs) Right. It is absolutely. And the pace is so frenetic and you do learn a lot about yourself in the process, but okay. So not everybody is from New York or has been to New York, but they can still relate to that. And you stayed in New York for how long after college? Uh, I was, oh, after college, uh, like four years. I was there a total of like eight years altogether okay. with school and then just living there, doing jobs and making comics and stuff. And so you graduated SVA with an illustration degree, right? I did, yeah. And so leaving college at 21, what were your expectations versus realities of what entering the work world was? Uh, I had nothing. Like I was already working a couple of like small jobs, and uh, I worked at a Jewish newspaper where I did like photo editing, and then I worked at I worked at a wine store just doing nothing, and then I finally got a job at a print shop, and I had no idea how to like get illustration jobs. I didn't think I was ready. I didn't even want to get illustration jobs because it didn't sound very good to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, the idea of 
marketing yourself and like all that stuff sounded like, well, that's not what an artist does or whatever bullshit I had in my head at 21 because, you know, when you're 21, you just have pure bullshit in your head. Um, <laughs> at least 10 pounds of bullshit. Totally um, true. Absolutely true. Yeah, which is fine. You know, everyone needs to be 21. Um, right. Yeah, I was just working. I worked in a print shop for like three years where I learned a bunch of stuff, but it was also just like it had nothing to do with what I was doing except that I was printing my comics for free, which is pretty cool. But yeah, I didn't really jump into illustration until after I got back from living in South Africa. Uh, before that, I just like dabbled, but I didn't. I wasn't really using my degree as <laughs> so much. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> no, you answered it. About what the expectation was after leaving college. And it's funny that you said um, you were doing things that really weren't doing anything, but you, then you said, oh, but I worked at a print shop and it helped me print my comics for free. When you were talking about your experiences just there, and we'll get into you know, working at the Monkey Conservatory, it reminds me of like uh, Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway went all over the world and did all these amazing things, and he's praised for it. But when you and I go do that, <laughs> it's like why don't you get your head on right? You know, so like in, when we look back on our lives, all of these odd jobs that we work and all of these other things that we do to support ourselves are adding to the big picture of what we learn. Oh yeah, absolutely. Any experience that you learn something from is, even if you don't learn something, it's still all worthwhile, I think. You're always exactly where you're supposed to be, whether you realize it or not. And okay, so you went to South Africa. You worked at a monkey conservatory, correct? Yeah, private sanctuary. How does something like that come about? Because that's such a specific yet unique situation to be involved in. What was the opportunity? Where did it come from? Okay, so back in college, I was doing, I was making a lot of paintings and stuff that involved primates, lots of monkeys, not not too many apes. And I just really liked the dynamic between like monkeys and uh, higher apes like humans and, and all that stuff and how they relate. And I was like, oh man, I'd love to be able to go draw and paint monkeys somewhere in real life somewhere. Okay. So I, I joined this mailing list that sends out different primate jobs, whether it's volunteers or field work or people trying to finish their doctorate or whatever, their studies. So I was on that thing for about three years. And so within that three years, I was living in Bushwick and uh, I just broken up with my or my, my girlfriend just broke up with me, big difference. Um, and <laughs> I, I was still working at the print shop, and I had no fucking idea what I was doing. I was just like in a rut and depressed and online dating and all this nonsense. And uh, you know, I, I just had this like really deep talk with one of my friends about like, where's it all going? Like, what am I doing? Like one of those bullshit mid twenties talks. And, sure. Uh, that you need to I have, by home. the way. Yeah, you do. You do need to have it. I mean, it's some of it's navel gazing, and other some of it's actually good for you. Um, right. <laughs> but uh, so after talking to him that one night, I went home and I looked at the this mailing list, and I saw this job for a primate caretaker slash chef in South Africa. I apply. I wrote this thing that night, and just like, kind of poured my heart into it. And then the next day, the uh, person who runs the sanctuary called me back or emailed me back and said, "Yeah, sounds good. You should come." And so, like six months after that, I was I was gone. Okay, I want to stop uh, here for one second, just because of something you just said. You said you wrote the letter and you poured your heart into it. So, in the moments that you applied to this thing, it was incredibly honest and open and vulnerable. Correct. So you were yeah. coming from a position where you didn't know what you were doing and and you wanted to take a chance. Right, and you know, at those points, it's kind of like you have nothing to lose <laughs> in some ways. Absolutely. You have to, so you have to like give it your all. 
Right. Um, and I think it, it's hard to it's hard to be vulnerable. It, it takes a certain kind of strength, I think, mm-hmm. to, to just like pour your heart into something and try not to worry about like what someone's going to say. And I think that's what a lot of people have problems with, or are very scared of, is like to be honest or just to not wear a mask all the time. Correct. And kind of show themselves. And yeah. so yeah, I think when you you know, and this thing this. I think in life there's like catalysts, and sometimes if you don't jump on them, you're not gonna like make a change. Mm-hmm. And I had noticed that this was one of those catalysts where I had to kind of jump on this thing and make make something happen. So I did it, and it did. Right uh, at that moment, you could have been too afraid of judgment to sit down and write this passage to this person. Yeah, but because you were willing to take that risk, you changed your life forever. Your life will it went on a different course than it would have gone had you not done that. Totally, it completely changed my life. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where my life would be right now if, if that hadn't have happened. Okay, so you go to, you get the opportunity to go to South Africa. What were yeah. some of your um, reservations going in? What were the things that you were excited about? This is obviously something that most people have not experienced, and it took you to a place that you had no concept of. I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely no concept. I mean, when people think of Africa, it's like jungles and like there's like bongos beating and like native people or whatever and <laughs> shit. I mean, I think that's like the Westerners' view of it. So I mean, my I, mine wasn't exactly that, but it wasn't exactly like oh, there's strip malls just like here or it's semi-arid and almost not so different from how Colorado is because that's actually how it was in South Africa. So, I mean, yeah, when I got there, my reservations were definitely like, man, I hope this isn't weird. I hope they're nice. You know, I hope <laughs> I hope the living situation isn't too insane or terrible. I hope there's internet <laughs> so I can talk to my friends and girlfriend and all that. And, yeah, I was just really excited because my idea going into it was like, I'm going to go to a monkey sanctuary and everyone's going to be working together and we're going to have a great time and I'm going to make a book of paintings and drawings for my experiences and all that. And yeah, actually when I first was going over there, it wasn't going to be a comic book. It was just going to be like a, a book of paintings and drawings and like stray observations and stuff like that. So yeah, really just the unknown of it and like going to a... I, I had never been abroad, like over the ocean to another country, so that was like kind of a big deal. It took me like 24 hours to get there, so that was something, too. Yeah, it was really just the unknown, really just like trying to... I don't even remember what I thought of it right now (laughs) when I was that guy. I think it's interesting that you did have the intention of turning this experience to some form of art right from the beginning. Yeah. Which makes sense. I mean, you're an artist. If you're going to go do something like this, you should at least have some sort of plan to remember it in some way. But, okay, what was the reality of the situation when you got there? You mentioned that it, the climate itself wasn't necessarily that different from Colorado, which is good in a way because it was at least, you know, you, you weren't stepping into like a jungle rainforest where you have no concept of how do I survive here. But yeah, yeah. what was the reality? I mean, the reality was it was just like bare bones living. I did have my own room, which was pretty cool. It was dirty. There was power was on and off. There was never any hot water. Uh, food situation was weird where like humans didn't eat very well. Um, I was working like 12 hours a day. I only had one day off. Uh, it was just really, really hard work. I was like the only male long-term volunteer and the only American. So it was kind of weird because they're all British ladies. And sometimes we didn't really see eye to eye. And sometimes they were very like passive aggressive and shitty with me. So, I mean, there's, a, you know, it's like you have an idea about something and the reality of it is completely different all the time, no matter sure. what. Right. But, uh, 
I guess I wasn't expecting that, but I guess where there's humans and there's differences, then it's just gonna it's always gonna crop up. And right. you know, sometimes I'm not like the easiest guy to get along with, and sometimes I'm just gonna like I'm a complete prick because I don't know if you, if you are one of those people who just likes top forty radio and you don't think too far past your kind of normal boring things or things that I think are kind of normal and boring. It's I'm gonna kind of judge you a little bit, and I know it's kind of shitty, but it's also kind of like come on, like well, you want people and, you want people to think, yeah. yeah. I mean, especially like if you're going to a, a primate sanctuary, and also you would all people are curious. Yeah, and also my idea of British people was like I'm I'm a big fan of like I'm an Anglophile when it comes to music, so it's like I love like Britpop and like Oasis and like all these awesome bands coming out of England and like the Beatles and like you know I went over there and all these young kids like they fucking barely knew who the Beatles were and I was like <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude, that's your that's your country and like that's you know they changed the world. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and all they were talking about was like fucking pink and Jesus, I don't remember right now. Yeah, and you were stuck video, but... with them for six months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but okay, so the reason why your comic books are called Monkey Chef, you know, if people don't know, is because you were the person preparing the food for the monkeys and the people as well. So that's why you're working 12 hour days. At that point in time, you had no experience as a professional chef. No, and I didn't. I mean, I, 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 you know, I said that right away. You know, I just told Sue, who runs the sanctuary, like, I'm just a very good home chef. I have no experience, and she's like, "That's fine," because you know, a lot of it was like really bare bones. All we had, for, like, all we had for ingredients was like the most basic shit. That was actually one of the hardest parts was like coming up with good stuff for the humans every night. Monkeys, not so much. It was mostly just like fruit, and then you like, you know cut up some weird things like uh, chicken necks, boiled chicken necks, which were really disgusting and gross and made a snapping noise because you cut them with scissors. Uh, <laughs> and I'd make, like, make like weird monkey omelet every day. You'd, you'd mix up 12 eggs in this plastic bowl and then you'd microwave it and it came out in this weird yellow amorphous blob that you then cut into like half-inch chunks for marmosets, which are, you know... Only about a foot tall, mm-hmm. uh, even less than a foot tall. So yeah, that that part was really hard and strange. But yeah, I had had no no ex- like professional experience as a cook. What were some of your experiences with differing monkey personalities? Or monkeys have very unique, like all animals, honestly, have very unique personalities to themselves. But sure, as as far as like the marmosets go, they 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 were like the majority of the monkeys that were there. There's like maybe 100, 120 of them. They all live in, like, very close social groups, so it'll be, like, two, three, up to six, like, marmosets living in one enclosure or mm-hmm. one group. So that's very similar to humans. And then, I mean, the marmosets were crazy because they're these tiny monkeys, but they had so many similarities to humans that, like, I, I was just blown away. When I first saw the marmosets, they all kind of looked the same, but then you start to, like, learn about them, and they all have, like, all these distinguishing characteristics and faces and things they do every day and that's what really blew my mind when I realized like holy shit this little creature is like like pretty far from a human but like not that far Mm -hmm. because they only have like they only have like three kids they mate for life or until one of their mates dies you know they eat a lot of the same food as us other than like mostly like a fruit diet or protein lots of protein Mm -hmm. Um, but you know we also fed them stuff like carbohydrates like bread, we'd give them little pieces of bread or like little pieces of boiled potato or pasta. Uh, sometimes we'd make a monkey cake, <laughs> which was pretty cool. Uh, what, is, what goes into a monkey cake? 
So the monkey, they, they had these manufactured pellets called marmoset pet pellets, and okay. they were just tiny, maybe the size of a pea, but there are these red pellets. So you would soak those things in water and then just make like a regular cake batter, and then you would mix those things together so it, it would come out bright red from the pellets. So it almost looked like a, what's that called, red velvet cake. Mm-hmm. And so that was like the main thing in there. Sometimes we throw like bananas and stuff in there, and it's true that every monkey that I took care of there loved bananas. They just fucking, <laughs> they all loved them. Their capacities, they all loved bananas. So it's real. The cliche is real. <laughs> How do they take to you? Like obviously after a certain amount of time, they realize that you're somebody living there and they're seeing you every day. Did they warm to you? What were you friendly with them? You know, what was your relationship like with the monkey? Uh, so the the main it, it depends because they all had such different personalities. Some would warm up to you and like you would, could put your hand up to the wire of their enclosure, and they'd come by for like you could, you could like give them little scratches and they'd interact with you, and some just hated you because you know whatever you smelled like or whatever you were doing. But there's quite a few that I had like that were some of my favorites and. Uh, they seem to really like me. I don't, you know, some of it's like, are you imposing your human views on them? And like, maybe they don't really like you that much, but they, they seem to like really dig me. My favorites really seem to care about this weird, gigantic monkey that was taking care of them. <laughs> you said something just now really interesting. You said, uh, are you imposing, you know, your human views on the monkeys themselves? I would imagine that spending that much time around monkeys would have changed in some ways your worldview on what people were like. Yeah, I was there for nine months. And you knew that you were going to do some art project about that, and we'll get into that. But And sorry, that, that doesn't give Monkey Chef 1 or 2 nearly the amount of credence that I want to, but the question I have cool. is, what was that like coming back to America and assimilating back into the culture that you were just talking about that you sometimes want to break from because it seems so pointless to you. you okay you're back now nine months later you're you're here again in new york how was that what was the decompression period like for you i mean it definitely took a couple of weeks to a month but i was i was so happy to be home because i mean for one thing it's like i just wanted a slice of pizza so bad like a real new york slice of pizza <laughs> and i got that like right away mm-hmm. and i just wanted like running water and i didn't want spiders like all over my room and like dirt all over me and like all that stuff so a lot of it was like creature comfort kind of things that I had really missed. But, I mean, culturally, too, there's a lot of shit in South Africa that it kind of stripped away a lot of things that I thought of when I was in New York. We just, I don't know, it, our culture in, in America, we just care about so many things I could I could really give a shit about, like owning a house or a car or, like, status or all these things. So, you know, being schooled in New York just by New York itself and then going to South Africa, which is the complete opposite out in farmland just north of... Pretoria, you know, kind of just like schooled me even further. For one thing, I, I feel like I could exist anywhere and like get by <laughs> mm-hmm. just through adaptation. And Absolutely. Just kind of realizing like what's important for me. It kind of it cemented my ideas of like what's fucked up with art or culture, what's fucked up with South Africa's culture, all these things. Well, it also gave you the unique perspective of seeing two different ends of the spectrum and, and experiencing both of those things. Yeah, it's very it's very bipolar. <laughs> I. I, I I can't imagine it, but I, I'm trying to imagine it at the same time. And I didn't realize this until you we're talking about this right now. I know that you did this in your life, and but I didn't realize how much until just this moment that had to have affected in a positive way your ability to survive easily in now Chicago, but 
not having a nine to five, not doing the things that were taught, the status things like you mentioned that were taught that we're supposed to have. And, you know, okay, so you're going to make rent this month because you just spent nine months living in a monkey sanctuary, figuring out a way to call together enough money to make rent isn't that hard now. Uh, I mean, may, I mean that's one thing. Like coming back to like a day job or like some sort of regular job was kind of tough because it's like, man, I was just living free out in South Africa, even though I wasn't really living free. I mean, no matter where you live, you're gonna have constraints. I mean, that's that's actually a pretty big lesson. Like no matter where you live, there's still gonna be something affecting you. <laughs> but um, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess that's true. Like in the back of your head, like I, you know, I almost got killed by macaques once. So yeah, I think I can probably do this job. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh. <laughs> when did you decide to make Monkey Chef a comic? You said you went to South Africa knowing that you were going to do something creative with this experience. Yeah, visually. That's a big part of it. What, how did the process of coming to the realization that you wanted to make a comic about your experiences come to be? I just I, I realized maybe halfway through my stay that it was too complicated, and there's just too many good stories to tell. Not only about the monkeys, but my like my living situation, the people I lived with, how the job worked, South Africa itself, the long distance relationship I was keeping on with my then girlfriend, now wife. I just realized there's too much to tell, and I couldn't just make images and like notes. It had to be this bigger thing. Yeah, it just had to be that. Like it had to. I had to. I have to tell the story somehow and like get it out of me. <laughs> Okay, so you put the story to paper. Then you had to figure out, what am I going to do with this? Yeah, once I got back from South Africa, I didn't work on anything for a long time because I was still kind of like decompressing. And in the back of my head, I was like, man, what the fuck did I just go through? <laughs> and uh, so it took me like a year, a good year probably, to start actually working on anything. My first idea was to do like vignettes or like very small stories that would all kind of connect together. And that's mostly what Monkey Chef 1 is. It's four different stories that all take place at the sanctuary, but they're different aspects of what I was doing. So I just very slowly started to like experiment with how I would make the comic look. Uh, but I wasn't really thinking about like how am I going to print this or how am I going to publish this. I knew I was going to get it printed or publish it somehow, no matter what. I just kind of had to make it. Yes. It might not be healthy because it's like it's an obsession. You know, I have to tell these stories and get them out of me. Like right now, I'm working on the third issue and I'm on like six, page 62 of the layouts, and it's probably going to be 120 pages. It's like I, I have to like work on this stuff, get it out, and not worry about the consequences of who's going to see it or how it's going to get out there because I know I have to get this story like out of me so I can feel like peace of mind. I actually, I think that's got to be incredibly cathartic and, and healthy because think about it. Like, What if you just never had the courage to get it out? You just bottled it up the whole time. You know? So I love that you said in terms of like publishing and, and uh, self-marketing, and you were not worried about that. To me, that's like the mark of when you, it's like love or passion or something. Like, I don't, I don't care how, what it takes. I'll get it done. That's not the big deal here. It's doing it. That's, that's the thing that I need to do. Yeah, because that, I mean, that, those parts are just details for after the fact. I feel but like that's you know, also the kind of thing that people get hung up on often. Right. I better have something lined up for this before I start creating it or it's a waste of time. And for me, like, I can't think that way because, you know, like what I experience, this is like my fucking life. This is my passion. Like, if I wasn't doing this, you know, I'd probably be dead or I'd be doing heroin all the time or something like that. <laughs> I don't know, something crazy. I'd be, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if I wasn't doing this, there's nothing else I'd be doing. So it's like, this is my life. This is what I have to do. Uh, there's no, there's really no option for me. <laughs> and we haven't even gotten to the point where we're talking about the specifics of 
crowdfunding Kickstarter, which is important. And, and But your exact verbiage, you said, this is my life. Like, this is all there is. Sometimes I think people don't realize, like, they get lost in the details of uh, the me-centric type of society that we're bred into. And you have to say, no, no, this is my life. Like, I don't, I'll do, I'll walk through fire for it because it's me. It, this is what's, what's most important to me. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's not just my job. This is like, it is me. Whatever I can't express internally, that's, it's that being put out into the world externally as this object. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it might sound nuts and like naive or stupid or whatever, but I just can't think of it as a job all the time. Like I have to, I have to do both. Like I have to think of it as a job. I do have to sell it at some point. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, I don't think you can think of it as a job. You have to think of it as like, this is my thing. This is what I'm doing. It has to be here or it has to be materialized. So I have to make it. Right. No one else is going to do it for you. You have to do it. And when you put it out, it'll be a uh, therapeutic experience too. Yeah. And also kind of a sad one because, you know, I actually noticed this with uh, when I put Monkey Ship 2 out, like after I was done working on it, because it was a really long story or longer, it was like 45 pages. After I was done with it, I was like, oh, I'm kind of sad because I'm not working on anything right now. <laughs> yeah. You had your own, like, postpartum pregnancy depression, like, with this. After I birthed that comic out of me, (laughs) I was a little little sad. (laughs) Okay, but, so take me through, now you have Monkey Chef number one done at this point in time that I'm going to. Yeah. You realize, okay, I want to publish it, I want to put it out in the world. Eventually you use Kickstarter. To be honest, actually, before I went to Africa, I raised funds to go there. Ah, so like so I could have like a piece of money to like live off of because sure. I wasn't getting paid at this job. It was all volunteer. Right. So originally my Kickstarter for issue one was uh, support a monkey painting book or support a monkey whatever book, and I raised like only like a thousand bucks or twelve hundred on that. I had touted it as like or I had sold it as like this book of paintings or just like this experience scrapbook, whatever you want to call it, memoir thingy. So when I came back, I was like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to make it a comic. So actually, all the money that I raised from that, I used in South Africa to live there. And okay. all the money... Uh, the first issue of Monkey Chef, it was like 100 copies that I printed up just mm-hmm. to like get it out there. And I just used all my own money to get that done. Okay. And then whoever you know had supported the Kickstarter, I just sent them copies or like paintings or whatever they had as rewards. So, I mean, yeah, all the money I used that was supposed to go towards the book, which I guess is kind of fucked up in a few ways, but also not really because I made good on my returns. Sure. In the end. Um, but, yeah, I spent all that in South Africa just living there, and then I paid my own money to f- print the first issue. Right. Uh, which, just got it to people. That would have just been the reverse of what you would have done anyway. You would have paid your own money in South Africa and used that money for the book coming back. So it kind of, like, yeah. bounced out. Right. I mean, and everyone got what they what they paid for eventually, so it wasn't like a weird. I didn't. I didn't like not give anyone what they wanted. Now, Monkey Chef number one was very well received within the comic community and within your friends and people who've read it. Yeah, so far it seems like that. And that obviously gave you a larger onus to make Monkey Chef number two. I'm assuming too, even though you want to put it out there, that it was well received had to have built your confidence more so even. Yeah, I mean, just to have anyone acknowledge it and be like, oh, this is really good. You've done it really, like, this This one part's really good. And I was like, oh, okay, wow, thanks. So, yeah, it really did. Like, that, that kind of stuff, 
pumps you up and really makes you see past your own mistakes that you might have made in the first one. Or Yeah, I mean, it really does. It, just anyone giving you, like, oh, this really touched me or this, this was cool, like, that really does something for you. And it does make you want to just keep going and work on that next one. Take me through, then, the process of funding Monkey Chef number two. Because you use Kickstarter, and when you, when you sit down and you go, okay, I mean, now you had, I don't really mean it this way, but you almost like backdoored into Kickstarter for the first one. So like you had some experience with Kickstarter, but it wasn't like one of these, like, I need Kickstarter or this isn't going to work type things. Like, so you kind of like were able to use Kickstarter without um, fear of what happens if you don't get this goal or something. Yeah. When you sit down for Monkey Chef number two and you're going to try to self-publish it, what are some of the things that you're keeping in mind when you put the whole Kickstarter campaign together? You shot a video, you used puppets. It was amusing. It was funny, obviously. It was unique. And it's also, you're trying to market a unique story that is not the next, and this is going to sound terrible, but it's not the next Batman comic or, or something like that. It's a, it's a completely unique set of circumstances to write a comic book around. The main thing for, like, I, I learned a lot from the first Kickstarter, but then I also learned a lot from other people's campaigns, just looking through them. I try to research that as much as possible, especially, like, comics, campaigns. And I knew the video thing was a big deal. And, you know, I, I used to, uh, when I lived in Colorado, I had a group of friends. We used to shoot, like, comedy videos with each other and, like, edit them and, like, put them all together and stuff. So I needed, I know I needed that video to be, like, a whopper. Like, I needed it to be either fun or funny or interesting and I know I needed the Kickstarter to be like its own thing, like its own piece of art in a way to draw people in. Like you can't half-ass those things and expect people to be like, oh, yeah, take all my money. So, I mean, I, I prepared really long, a really long time, like a month or two, to get that thing going and just make it its own thing and just try and make it as relatable and interesting, funny as possible just so people would respond. Or I filmed myself talking about the book mm -hmm. in the video, and, you know, it's another situation where I have to, like, pour my heart into what I'm saying because... People will see it if it's not that. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it's... Hopefully people will read my true honesty, like, I need this to happen. I want you to read it. Please help, you know? <laughs> and not just think of it as, like, some sort of persona of humbleness or oh please help me or whatever you know that that kind of bullshit right i was gonna say that i feel like people can see through when you're being like fake or humble or like oh please help me like that kind of shit because it's, it's also very rampant in like the internet age where everything is persona everything is edited and like you're kind of curating your own life on facebook you're curating mm -hmm. your own life on tumblr and instagram and you're showing this picture that you want people to see, which might not be the exact picture of who you are. So for me, like, I'm always trying to show who I am, not not a persona, which I don't know if is, is very wise or not. But No, I think it's the most wise thing in the world that you could ever do. I don't know, I mean, because I feel like some people really get by on their personas, and they're very successful, and they're... My brain just always calls bullshit on me if I'm doing something that doesn't feel right, you know, and I get a stomach ache, like, oh, that felt fake. Oh, dude, I know. <laughs> Like, I can't be smarmy, and I just can't be that guy. Like, you know, I, and I don't really blame people who are good at it because I think that's kind of like a coping mechanism and also like a way of uh, adapting to your surroundings. Sure. So I just know I'm very bad at it. Right. <laughs> and you don't want to live that way. It's just how you don't want to live that way. It's just not my thing. 
I want to do some like umbrella things here for some of the things that you just said for people. Yeah. You shot a video. You knew the video had to be a whopper, but you also said that you had been shooting comedy videos in the past with your friends just to screw around with. So I think it's really important for people to know that if you're going to try to set up some sort of crowdfunding campaign, use skills there that you already have and that make you who you are. And then that also goes to what you're saying about in the video itself, being genuine and really telling people what's going on and opening. Like if you want people to give you money, you got to be vulnerable. And I mean, you and I have ridden a New York City subway countless times and been asked for money. And I find yeah. that I do sometimes give money. I don't always give money, but I always yeah. feel like I can tell the genuine from the not quite so genuine article there. So people can do that, you know? So like you're saying, even for yourself to be comfortable, be yourself, because then even as you're putting the product out there, you'll be proud of yourself. But also you said you looked at other people's campaigns and you did a shit ton of research because yeah. you did your homework. You know, you've got to do your homework. You can't expect people to give you money too, again, if you haven't done your homework. And also, like, you got to treat Kickstarter like a job because that's that's how I treated it. Every day I was, like, posting. Every day I was trying to find people to kind of host it. Like, I, you guys did a... Like I, I yeah, Wallbreakers did that, yeah. Wall and that was really cool. Thank you again. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you got to, like, you got to think about all those angles. Like, how can I get this in front of people? You know, I was sending emails. I was trying not to be too annoying. But, you know, at a certain point, it's like, eh, fuck, sorry. Could do you like this? You want to give me money? If not, okay, that's fine too. <laughs> but you know, you don't treat it like a job, and I did for a month. I treated it like every day. I was like trying to get this in front of people's faces and make it but work. You just, you just said something again about you know you can't feel that bad. You have to ask people over and over again. It's another point in time where you're having to be vulnerable there because you're asking people for something. You can't ask people for something and then at the same time not be vulnerable. It it, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah, because if you do that and then you're like, you put on some sort of pretense, people are just like, oh, you're gross, go away. So for me, I just try to be as like honest as possible about it. And, you know, I'm sure I annoyed a few people and that wasn't my intention, but just the the act of asking people for that kind of uh, commitment is going to be annoying for some people. And I totally understand that. Sure. Uh, but I also try not to get too annoyed when people are like, hey, fund my Kickstarter or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, okay. I mean, no so, matter what, you're going to step on some toes. I guess that's the takeaway. <laughs> and I think, and I think that's something just about life in general. Like, um, if people are afraid to be themselves, it tends to be two things: one, fear of judgment, and two, fear of stepping on people's toes. And in life, if you are yourself, you are going to step on people's toes from time to time. But at least at the end of the day, you'll have a conversation about them with it after, and they'll know you're genuine, and they'll be genuine with you, and et cetera, et cetera. And people might not always like you, but they're going to respect you for being honest at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it's unavoidable, but at a certain point, you got to live your life and just try not to be an asshole as much as possible. But sometimes you're going to, sometimes you're going to be an asshole to someone. <laughs> right, and it'll just yeah, and, and I think that even works here with the situation of a self marketer. Like, don't be a dick. But you got to be yourself. Like, and if somebody gets turned off, ask him why, and you know, learn from it too. Right. And you know, if someone tells you to go away, just go away. Right. <laughs> Don't bother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What was it like for you? Because you hit your goal, obviously, for Monkey Chef number two. Yeah. As you know, that that goal is going to be hit. What did that feel like? That that seems like one of those like, what was it like, Joe Carter hitting the game-winning home run in the World Series? Question, but. <laughs> what is the emotion behind that? Like, Just like right? that. Uh, 
Well, I mean, the big one was, like, relief, and then kind of, like, relief, but then, like, holy shit, I can't believe this is real. Uh, and then, like, I can't believe this many people are interested. Um, not, I mean, it's just, it's it's hard to explain because it's, like, holy shit, that's crazy. Thank you so much. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's it was it was nuts. I think I kind of like fell on the floor when I saw that it hit the goal, and I was like, "Oh wow!" <laughs> I think it goes immediately to show that. And now, once again, you had an incredibly unique experience, and um, you you chose to to express it in a unique way in a comic form. But we've spoken a lot already today about the need to be honest and vulnerable, and then. You realize, I think, when you are open and honest and vulnerable, people do gravitate towards that because everybody likes somebody who's genuine. And the feeling that you felt when you knew the Kickstarter was going to hit, even if it was like, wow, my life matters. You know what I mean? Like, wow, I'm I'm real and people care about that. Yeah, I mean, and it shouldn't be always a validation of yourself, which, you know, it's, it's very unhealthy to do that. I mean, you should always sure. have it inside of you eternally anyway. But I just want to say one thing about being vulnerable, too, is that sometimes it's really a turnoff to people because they view okay. that as uh, they view it as weakness, which, which is some sort of weird macho thing. I don't really understand it. You know, I, I would just like to say that I think being vulnerable is actually a strength because being able to, like, put yourself out there and not fear the consequences as much or not fear reprisal or someone coming at you and being like, you suck, or you're weak, I can't believe you said that about yourself, or I can't believe you revealed something like that about yourself, or blah, blah, blah. Like that, that's that person's problem. That's not your problem. 100% correct. And I also think that sometimes we, we go back to that high school mentality. That's really like what we're talking about, like being vulnerable yeah. and being free. That's a high school thing. Like, you know, like, oh, dude, you're real skinny in that weight room there, huh? <laughs> you know, it's just like, Right, it's like this freshman panic moment. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder if maybe as adults, sure, there are uh, mouth breathers all over the place, so afraid <laughs> to be vulnerable themselves that they have to shoot you down at every turn. But I'm finding that in my late 20s, I could care less about those people anymore because they're not living any kind of real life. And anytime that I find, and I'm just saying this for other people. Haters going to hate. <laughs> it's very true. Haters going to hate. And also, like, Whenever I've been vulnerable, and, and you're obviously agreeing with this, it is a strength because at the end of the day, when you've been vulnerable, don't you feel better afterward? Like you, it's empowerment to be who you truly are and to express it and to be willing to be hurt by it at the same time. Right, and also like being able to like open up your chest and throw your heart at someone and then maybe get it thrown back. <laughs> you know, like that shows strength because. You can take a few. You can take a knock. You can get knocked down and get back up. You know, Absolutely. You're not going to let failure be a deciding factor for your life because failure is part of learning and a part of growth. And you should be able to fail all the time and then get back up, learn something, and then just keep doing it. But I kind of sound like a motivational speaker right now, and I kind of want to hit myself. But uh... <laughs> no, but it, but it's true. We shouldn't have to say that, but it's almost like we have to because people. I always find that when um, I'm going through insecure moments, I, I have moments where I feel like nobody in the world knows what this feels like right now, when actually everybody in the world knows what it feels like. And Yeah, they just don't talk about it a lot. Right, because they're afraid to be vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> seems to be some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, the, the, the overall arching point for the, the crowdfunding and self-marketing is that if you're going to be a self-marketing person, like you've decided to be because you went to school for illustration and nobody told you that you would never be able to get a job, a staff job afterwards, you know, yeah. they took your money for college. No, but jokes aside, <laughs> to make it in this world, you're going to have to be vulnerable. And that includes running a Kickstarter campaign or really just finding any kind of real monochrome of success. You, you're going to have to put yourself out there. Yeah, you're going to have to fail, and then you're going to have to do it better next time. You've given some good advice about what somebody might want to do if they're going to launch a Kickstarter campaign, as in do your research, come up with something that's completely unique to you, and be honest about it, and be open with people, and explain to them why this is so important to you. You said that you're working on a, a third volume of Monkey Chef, and it's going to be the biggest one yet. You said 120 pages? Yeah, something like that. Are you planning on using a crowdfunding campaign again to fund the money for Monkey Chef number three? Most likely what's going to happen, I'm going to probably pitch it, once I get all the layouts done and I have like the huge, like the whole outline of the whole thing, I'm probably going to pitch it to some publishers. Okay. Um, just to see if there's any interest. But, sure. uh, you know, if there's no strong interest or I don't see like a deal that I like or a timeline that I like, like I'm just going to probably crowdfund it again because... You know, not only do I like the autonomy of that, I like that you can do it pretty quickly and not have to deal with, like, a publisher's schedule and all that stuff. Right. So, I mean, it would be nice if everyone, if I got published and, like, someone else took care of that for me, but, you know, if it doesn't happen, like, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to put it out by myself and continue to do what I've been doing. Would you offer any additional advice to someone who's looking to crowdfund something other than what we've already talked about? Yeah, I mean, don't be annoying, be honest, offer some good stuff, always try and get those rewards out as quickly as possible if your thing gets funded. You know, basic stuff, treat people with respect <laughs> and try and deliver a really great product. I didn't know this going into this interview, but a lot of the ways that you're going to make money for yourself in life is to be a well-rounded, decent human being who's honest. It goes to show you that in a world where making a dollar is becoming harder and harder, it makes sense that at the end of the day, the genuine people, yeah, you're going to fail from time to time, but you're going to get back up and rise to the challenge and people will respect you for it. Yeah, I mean, even if they don't, you know, you just got to keep doing what feels right to you. <laughs> even, even if it turns out it's, it wasn't the best thing, like, you got to stay true to uh, whatever that weird thing, whatever the weird obsession is inside of you. I think. Right. Because we all have them. We're all un completely unique individuals on the inside, yet very much like everybody else, too, at the same time. Yeah, of course. Just a I, big, crazy human, human pond. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I want to go back for a second to, to the thing that Brett Affronti, who I interviewed last year, who is a, a mutual friend of both of ours. Yeah, Brett's uh, awesome. Brett is a very successful freelance illustrator, and Brett, as we both know, works his rear end off to, to make that happen which yeah. is really whatever you're going to do in life, you're going to have to work hard at it, chances are. But when he said that, you basically, if you want to be a freelance illustrator or an illustrator, you have no choice but to be a freelancer. And I think that even goes for, as somebody who likes to make comics, I, I wanted to ask you, so we're talking about self-publishing, self-marketing. You're obviously not turning profits on these Kickstarter campaigns. How are you sustaining yourself? How are you making money from month to month right now? Right now I'm doing... Uh... I mostly like freelance illustration. I teach classes. I teach comic book classes and stuff, which I really like. 
And I just do, like, other random stuff. Like, I used to work at a restaurant, but I don't really anymore. Sometimes I'll, like, fill in for people. Uh, you know, I just, I just do whatever I can to make it happen. And, and my overhead on my apartment is kind of low, so I just try and stick with a budget and, like, support myself while taking the time to finish this book, but also just to live decently, too. And like I said earlier, it's like it's you're, it's really piecing all those things together because you know I'm not only like an illustrator or a cartoonist or whatever. I have lots of titles which don't really matter because mostly it's just making enough for me to get by and make what I want. So if somebody is willing to, or somebody wants to take the plunge and and leave a day job, and um, maybe even you know whether or not they have a Kickstarter campaign in mind or or self marketing in mind, it seems to me that. You have to be willing to, you know, not eat at the most expensive restaurants all the time, but also you have to not be incredibly prideful and, and be willing to hustle and, and work a bunch of different jobs and do whatever you can to do to survive to get to the other side of that. At the end of the day, it's like it's your life and you should be able to do what the hell you want with it. So, I mean, you know, I can say I do freelance illustration and then some days I serve food at a restaurant because I don't give a shit. If you want to judge me about that, like, I don't care. I'm getting right. by making what I want to make. You know, I have a great wife, I've got two ridiculous cats, and I've got great friends, and I'm living, like, a pretty good life. So yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, it doesn't really get much better than that to me. Uh, but maybe I'm just not ambitious enough. <laughs> no, man, come on. The, the, <laughs> happiness doesn't come with a price tag, you know? Like, happiness yeah. comes from inside, you know? At the end of the day, people, I think people need to know that, like, all those people, they're afraid of, of judging them. They're not going to be in the casket with you. <laughs> like when you die, that's yeah. all that's there is you. Right. You know, so like live your life the way you want to live it. And I think sometimes it's really interesting to me when I sit down with so many talented people like yourself and do these interviews because I'm learning as as I'm going here. And no matter what the topic is, you know, today's topic is self marketing and Kickstarter, and we covered a lot of things about your life. And there's so many overlapping details. No matter who I sit down with, yeah, happiness doesn't come at a price, but you have to be willing to be vulnerable for it. And we need so much less than we think in life to be happy. And, and maybe people need to realize that, that like, I mean, if you want things fine, but you shouldn't be killing yourself for bullshit at the same time. Right. I, I think the main thing is don't let anyone else tell you what you want or what you need. That's you're the person who decides that. Right. And if you don't decide that this world will tell you that. <laughs> right. You will. You'll get lumped together with something. Exactly. So besides the monkey ship number three, what, do you have a target date for that or that you're looking to finish that up by? Uh, for the most Can part. Can we expect this in our Christmas stockings? That's what I really want to know. <laughs> yeah, you'll have a monkey in your Christmas stocking. Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get it done probably by the end of the year and then, you know, release it probably in next spring or something like that. But okay. uh, right now I'm just trying to let it breathe and, like, take as much time as I need to because it's so much bigger than any other project I've done. So I'm trying to like get everything right while constantly working on it, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Absolutely. And you know, your experiences in life and just who you are in general, you've got a very balanced head on your shoulders. And I'm wondering how, like how far down the road do you bother to look when you, when you try to make decisions for yourself in life? Do you, are you very present at all times or do you try to have, formulate long-term plans? What's, what's your philosophy as far as that goes? I think that's a good question. I mean, you know, I, I, some days it's day by day. I'm just trying to get by. And then some days I'm like, 
dreaming ahead five years. Um, like, how am I going to support this? How am I going to do this? But a lot of it is like, when I'm wrapped up in a project like the one I'm working on right now, it's like, I know I need to get this thing out so I can focus on what I can do next or, like, maybe do something a little more sustainable or... But, yeah, I mean, some days I'm, I'm just, like, you know, I'm right... I'm, like, two inches away from my face and other, other days I can think, you know, all the way down the horizon. But, sure. yeah, I guess it changes from day to day. Which is probably a good thing. It shows that you're willing to adapt. Yeah, or something. <laughs> or it's or it's real stupid. Who knows? We'll see what happens. <laughs> a twinkle in the milkman's eye, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any uh, any specific things that you'd like to plug? Not really. I mean, you know, go to my website and hire me for illustration if you need me. <laughs> or uh, go buy my comics, I guess. Sure. Can you spell your website, please, for listeners? Uh, yeah, it's mikefreiheit.com. So that's M-I-K-E-F-R-E-I-H-E-I-T.com. And, uh, yeah, you can. there's a store link, so you can, like, buy comics or just check out my, my illustrations or don't do any of that. Just, you know, go look at porn. That's a good <laughs> idea, too. <laughs> uh, all, right. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Well, there you have it, another edition of Breaking Walls, this one with Mike Freiheit. Thoughts on using crowdfunding to finance creative endeavors? Mike, thank you very much for your time. I greatly appreciated this interview. It was strong, you are a passionate individual, and you're making your life work for you, and I have so much respect for that. And you talked about vulnerability in this podcast and the need for it, and I agree with you completely that there is sometimes this macho thing where you're not supposed to be vulnerable because that's a sign of weakness. And excuse my French, but that is some of the biggest bullshit that I've ever heard in my entire life. The more we can be vulnerable and the more we can put ourselves out there, the more we can achieve happiness. Happiness comes through creative endeavors, and creative endeavors come through putting yourself out there and being yourself around other people. Because guess what? How many people out of 100 are going to be judgmental of you? And when that happens, do you really care? If you're truly being yourself, what are you shying away from? Nothing. There's nothing to be afraid of. Happiness is something that we can attain very easily, and the unknown is just happiness that's awaiting for us to go find out about. Mike is in the process of putting together Monkey Chef number three. This is going to be the largest one to date, so when he has things to share for that, I will be sure to pass it along. I want to thank Mike for his repeated contributions to the Wall Breakers since 2012. I have written multiple articles about Mike's work. I have also written about the Kickstarter campaign to Monkey Chef number two, and I want to thank him for appearing on Breaking Walls 18. If you have a few moments, go to thewallbreakers.com, search for Mike Freiheit, that's F-R-E-I-H-E-I-T, and you can see some of the work that he has posted with the Wall Breakers in the past. A week from now, I'm hoping to come back with an interview centered around starting a business in your 20s and thoughts on running it from somebody who's still in her 20s. Two episodes ago, we sat down with Eric Scott for a conversation about his thoughts on running a business, and Eric is in his early 40s and has run two businesses in his life. But what's it like for somebody who's starting it in the post-economic downturn world, and somebody who has, like myself, only experienced that kind of professional career? I graduated college in 2008, six months before the economic downturn. My entire career has basically been 
figuring out how to stay afloat during this crisis. And if people think there, that there aren't still people struggling out there, I don't see how you couldn't know that. You talk to a lot of people and a lot of people are struggling. So I think it's up to us to band together with people that we like. And because, think about it, creative endeavors will come out of that and then you'll find things, and I'm not saying that everybody is not doing this already or everybody's not happy. I'm not trying to say that at all. I'm just making a point that when we can find outlets for our passion, we're doing things that come very natural to us. And then our levels of comfort and confidence with these things grows. And on that note, I'd like to give a shout out to a friend of mine, Sandra Williams, who is of Son and Star. Her and Star recently put out their first conjoined solo album. They're the backup singers to... Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. If you have a few bucks to spare, go to iTunes, search for Sawn and Star, and uh, give them a download. Their album is called Look Closer. I've been playing it the last few weeks, and I love every minute of it. So thank you, Sandra, for being such a great friend, and I hope you would continue to achieve nothing but the best success. You know, I love you, and I love everybody else out there, too, who's been tuning into Breaking Walls. I appreciate this very much, and the support that you guys have told me verbally has been very empowering. As Mike mentioned earlier in the episode, it's not that you need this to go on, but it's important to have validation. I have self-validation, as do you guys, but it's still nice when you hear that people appreciate you for who you are and what you're doing, because it does give you the credence to keep going, and it really boosts you up. This week is Bastille Day. That was yesterday. I'm not saying that you should storm any castles or any palaces. But you should probably get out there, guys, and break some walls. It's the month of independence. We built it from the community that's around us. Go hang out with that community. Be independent. So until next time, my name is James Scully. You'll be hearing from me in one week. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. <laughs>